Worthy are you, Father, to receive all glory, all honor, all praise. Prayer is such a wonderful gift to all your people. To know that we are able to approach you through Jesus' shed blood. To know that you hear our concerns and are faithful to answer. We confess, Father, our apathy and indifference. It's so easy and common for us to think only of ourselves. To see the world and life only through our superficial lenses. Lord, I pray that you would enable and equip us to see through your eyes. Make our hearts sensitive to your desires, your plans. We all face a multitude of challenges, temptations, pains, and blessings. It's often difficult to navigate them well. We ask you for strength, for wisdom, for grace, to honor you always in all things. Grow us through that which is uncomfortable and that which is pleasing. Give us discernment that we never waste what you ordain for us. Father, we pray this morning for our community. Give the people here in Milton a hunger for you and for your word. Give them the ability to see through the dangers and distractions of the life that's before us. Use this church to proclaim your mercy and grace. To be passionate, Father, with the gospel. We pray for our civic leaders, those who serve us, for the mayor, the Lord, for the city council. We ask that you would make your will known to them, that you would give guidance and direction in all their decisions, that they might have wisdom, wisdom that will enable the facilitation of your gospel. Lord, we pray for those who serve as first responders who protect us. We pray that they will know your hand of protection in a great way about them and their work. We pray that the gospel will be known by them. We pray that they will know you as the object of their faith. We pray that you might bless them in their work. That you will bless and take care of their families. Lord, we offer up this morning our sister churches in the area. So many, too many to name all, but we think of Lebanon and Shadowbrook and New Branch and Christ Church and Radiant Church, Faith Community, Mount Vernon, Rehoboth, M28. The list goes on and on. And for the leadership in each of those churches, those who will stand behind the sacred desk today and proclaim your word, we ask even now that your spirit would bring power and anointing upon them, that the truth will go forth and ring out across our community in a great and mighty way. We pray that you will, Lord, animate your word through the power of your spirit. May it pierce hearts today. May it change lives today in a miraculous fashion. We pray that your kingdom might be advanced, that genuine disciples will be made, 
that disciples will be sanctified and that your name will be glorified above all things for your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president recently, revealed in an interview that he keeps a book with the list of people who have crossed him in the past. I know this may sound like a joke, but seriously, one of the most senior officials in the EU walks around with a book of names of people who have been mean to him. Junker says in the interview, I have a little black book called Le Petit Maurice, where for the past 30 years I've noticed noted with someone when someone has betrayed me. He goes on to say in the interview that the book isn't really full because people rarely betray me. To defend himself, he says a little later, I'm not vengeful, but I have a good memory. The book became so well known during his time as the prime minister of Luxembourg that he would tell people attack him and be careful, little Maurice is waiting for you. Most of us are wired to keep track of wrongs done to us. When we have experienced hurt inflicted by others, we have long memories. It's tempting, it's even consuming at times to want to have payback. We carry pain and hurt around as an onerous burden upon our hearts. It weighs us down, it wears us out. Even if we carry out the vengeance, it's not liberating. It's not freeing. Our burden only increases. The guilt increases. The 55th Psalm that we're looking at this morning was penned by King David. He penned this as a part of the suffering that he was incurring because of hurt and betrayal that had befallen him. I want you to see this morning, he opens this up and reveals to us a heart that is in crisis. A heart that is in crisis. A heart that is filled even to overflowing with pain, with desperation. He's in dire straits, consumed with this desperation. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not hide from my plea for mercy. Pay attention and answer me. I am restless and without peace. I am filled with misery. Why is David so miserable? Why is David so restless? He describes himself as being restless, tossing and turning when he's trying to sleep. Even as he goes about his business during the day, his heart is being tossed to and fro, filled with anxiety. Well, he tells us that he's miserable and restless because of the enemy's noise. The enemy's noise. He's, he's referring to what the enemy says. He's, he's talking about those who speak ill of him. They cast words, threats maybe even toward him. It made me think about his encounter with Goliath. You may remember when uh, David was sent by his father to check on his brothers who were engaging the Philistines in a war. One camp was on one mountaintop and another camp on the other and there's this broad, wide valley there 
and that's where they intended to skirmish. But the Philistines would send out Goliath, who was nine feet tall, the scripture tells us. And this giant would taunt Israel. He'd say, look, let's don't engage in a battle of both of our camps. Just send out your best man and let, let him take me on. And, and if you win, then we will submit to you. If I win, then you submit to us and we'll save a lot of lives that way. And the scripture says that the men of Israel were frightened and dismayed by this. Just the words that he uttered. David is telling us that the enemy, his enemies have used words that are causing him to experience misery. They were making him restless. He says it's because of the wicked's oppression, that they were applying pressure to him. Pressure brought to bear by these wicked people, evil people. Israel knew what pressure was from the enemy, oppression. Pharaoh had brought oppression upon the nation of Israel during their captivity in Egypt. Ahab and Jezebel had brought pressure to bear through their wicked leadership of the nation of Israel. Elijah chafed under that and tried to lead the people back and toward to repentance, to break the bondage of this oppression brought about by those who were in leadership but actually were proving to be enemies of God's people. The Jewish leadership did the same thing to the disciples. After the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the disciples were filled with the Spirit and they went out preaching the Word of God and they were brought before the same people who had sentenced Jesus to death and they were threatened and said, don't be preaching this gospel anymore. Don't be preaching or talking about this resurrection. We all know that that's not possible. It didn't really happen. And they were using their words to bring pressure upon them. And Peter and John said, look, you do whatever you need to do. But we're going to do what we think God has called us to do. And that is to proclaim the gospel. David says, they dropped trouble upon me. In other words, they caused me to falter, to lose direction. They caused me to shake, to shimmy, to slip off the path that I'm on. In anger, they bear a grudge against me. They're huffing and puffing and seething. And they cherish animosity. They reverence animosity. Now, who are these people? Well, they have set themselves up in opposition to King David. My heart is in anguish, he says, severely pained. The terrors of death have fallen me. He's being consumed with this idea that he's going to perish at their hands. He's going to die. He is facing death. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. I am desperate to escape, to flee. Like a dove fleeing for its life from a hawk. Have you ever noticed that battle? It's quite interesting to see. A dove is very elusive. Able to dart and move quickly. David's saying, I need what that dove has. The ability to escape from the predator, to move into a place where there's shelter, where there is protection. No one enjoys being vulnerable, feeling insecure, feeling like you're in someone's crosshairs. 
No one wants to be attacked and feel unable to escape, to feel powerless at the hands of the enemy, the one who threatens. The heart feels like it's being squeezed at times in some kind of large vice. The psalmist is in a very uncomfortable position. He can find no rest. How did it occur? How did he get there? Is there a reason for this crisis of the heart? Or is this all imagined? Well, he points us to what's causing the problem. If you look further down in verse 12 and following, he says, it's not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. He's pointing us to a world that's in turmoil. He points us to a world in turmoil. And there's two aspects of this that he leans into specifically. One is social anarchy that's going on around him. The city is in, in tumult. It, it's, it is seething with chaos. There's violence. There's strife. Day and night, it goes without ceasing. It's constantly going. He uses this terminology around the walls. A, a city's walls were important, actually critical to the people who lived in that city. The city walls protected, kept the enemy at bay. There was only the one entrance in through the gate. The walls were, you had watchmen stationed around them to watch for the enemy's moves. The offensive coming against the city. Guards were posted at the gate to protect the citizens. But he's talking about the city's walls being in chaos. The psalmist describes unrest, a loss of security. There's iniquity and trouble within the city. Ruin and destruction is unfolding in the city. Oppression and fraud dominate the marketplace. You can't get a fair wage. You can't get a fair price for goods. You can't get a fair measurement when you're buying grain or other goods. You can't trust anyone. There's no relief from the pressure and the stress that's going on in the city. David, as king, is looking out upon the city upon which he sits on the throne. And he sees that the city is in disarray. Remind you of anything? Does it remind you of anything? Does it point you toward anything? Sometimes we look around and we see our world seeming to come apart at the seams, that it seems to unravel right before our eyes. We see it, you know, for years maybe we've watched it through the television screen and think that it's, it's relegated to just areas away from here. But now we see that it's everywhere, isn't it? People seem to be restless they seem to be struggling with so much turmoil. John Calvin said, we are all good soldiers as long as things go well with us. But when brought to close combat, our weakness is soon apparent. Satan avails himself of the advantage, suggests to us that God has withdrawn the supports of his spirit and instigates us to despair. That's where David was. David looked around. He's trusting in God. He believes in God, but he looks at the circumstances around him, the circumstances under his leadership even, and he is bothered by this. He's in turmoil. He's frightened by the enemy. 
It's not hard to apply this to our present day. In fact, we cannot avoid similar pressures and stressors today. Our world is filled with anarchy. Our world is filled with violence. Our world is filled with fraud and oppression. And like the psalmist world, ours is in much turmoil. But his despondency goes even deeper. It's not just social anarchy that has, improb- uh, has a problem brewing in his heart, but he points to personal betrayal. There's personal betrayal. Even if the world is in chaos, you expect support from your friends, don't you? You expect support from family, friends, those who are close to you. But David is describing a scene where that's even unraveled for him. He's very much acquainted with betrayal. King Saul was a false friend to David. A superficial supervisor, leader for David. David's own son, Absalom, led a mutiny against him. And that seems to be at the heart of what's going on behind this psalm. There were others that betrayed David, but none was as impactful maybe as Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a counselor. He's one who brought counsel and wisdom to bear upon David's life. It's interesting, his name means foolish one or brother of folly. But he was one of David's most trusted counselors. He betrayed David during Absalom's mutiny. Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice just as David had. The scripture says, For every word that Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it had come from the mouth of God. David describes it here as being smooth and calm and warm and helpful. Ahithophel had the gift of wisdom. When he spoke, he brought a balm of soothingness, calmness to bear upon those ruffled feathers, that agitated heart. It's been said that no one could hold a candle to Ahithophel in his day as an able and famous politician. Matthew Henry said that he was a politic a thinking man, and one that had a clear head and a great compass of thought. It seems that David and Ahithophel had been friends from boyhood, that they had grown up together, that they had known each other a long time. And when Absalom led his rebellion and drew Ahithophel after him, it was a wound that went deep in the king's heart. Maybe this was one of the things that caused him to seemingly flee from Absalom. If your best friend has gone over to the mutiny, it's easy to see how you could lose confidence that God could bring anything good out of this. But David knew that Ahithophel's advice would be dangerous in the hands of his son. So during his escape up to the Mount of Olives, he prayed to the Lord that God would sabotage the wisdom that Ahithophel offered to Absalom. In answer to David's prayer, when David reached the summit of the Mount of Olives, he met Hushai, the archite. David sent Hushai back to Absalom in Jerusalem in a secret, as a secret agent to frustrate Ahithophel's plans, to unravel that. So David sent a spy into the camp to work for him against Ahithophel. Hushai pledged his loyalty to Absalom, but he gave advice to work for David. 
Absalom asked his counselors what steps he should take now that he seemingly had taken power. David was now no longer on the throne, running for his life. Ahithophel said, give me some soldiers, I'll pursue him, and I'll kill him. This is his best friend. This is his wise counselor. Something had gone awry. And the word came back to David. He understood that he was a wanted man, not just by anyone, not just by any common enemy, but by the closest of friends, his own son, his own boyhood friend and counselor. The wound, the hurt, the betrayal went deep. So what does one do? David is in a position of desperation. But notice what he says in verse 16. But I call to God. I call to God. It's easy for us to do like this politician we talked about earlier and take names and conspire, try to find a way to gain traction and bring about vengeance, retaliation, to figure this out in our own strength. David had access to all kinds of help, one would think, being the king. There are lots of people that would rise up and come alongside him to help him come back in and retake the palace and oust the enemies. But he says, I turn to the Lord. For he hears my voice. The Lord will save me. He will deliver and liberate me. He was caught in this vice of misery. But he had confidence and knew that the Lord was the only one who could set him free. The Lord is the only one who could release him. He redeems my soul in safety. The price for my release is more than I could pay. It's more than you can pay. He pays it. He secures our ransom. Delivered from the battle that I wage even though there be many arrayed against him. But God will hear, and God will humble them. He who is enthroned from eternity past takes on the battle with the oppressors. The evil that they assail does not change. They're committed to it. They are evil to their core. Only God has the path for victory. David describes this disturbing scenario. A companion, a friend who violates his friends. He has broken covenants, promises. His speech is smooth and enticing. His words are softer than oil, but they are dangerous weapons in the hand of one with such a wicked heart. He has no hope, no victory except through Christ. The Bible offers us many examples of betrayal, of this kind of Betrayal of a heart. Well, wasn't Abel betrayed by his brother Cain in the garden? Wasn't Joseph betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery? Wasn't Job essentially betrayed by his closest allies and friends? Wasn't Paul betrayed by Dem Demas? And we know Jesus was betrayed, was he not? Jesus was betrayed by Judas. In fact, if I ask you without giving you the answer, who betrayed Jesus? You would all say Judas. 
But isn't it true that we've all betrayed Christ? That we all betrayed God? That we have rebelled against his holiness, against his righteousness? Jesus was betrayed by Judas, but he was betrayed by Peter. Denied him three times. And each one of us has betrayed him as well. Right there at the cross, through all the humanity. Those who put the crown of thorns upon him. Those who thrust the spear through his side. We were all there with them. When Absalom rejected the advice of this counselor, Ahithophel's pride was wounded. Hushai managed to convince Absalom this was a bad move to follow the advice of Ahithophel. And so he rejected it. Ahithophel's pride was injured. And the scripture says he put his house in order and went out and hanged himself in desperation. Remind you of anyone? Absalom was defeated and received a punishment due his rebellion. But because of Ahithophel's betrayal of David, many scholars see him as a type of Judas Iscariot. Just as David's counselors betrayed him, so also Jesus' disciple Judas betrayed him. There's similarities here between Ahithophel and Judas They both were trusted friends that betrayed their good friend. They both sided with the enemy to plot their king's death. They both hanged themselves once the betrayal was complete. Our sin means that we've all betrayed Christ. No different than Judas. We've rebelled against him and against his righteousness. This world is broken by sin. Betrayal is the fallen nature of all of us. All of us know what it feels like. We've all been there. But Christ has taken our betrayal upon himself, taken it to the cross and paid the price for it to liberate us from it, to give us a new heart, to take away the heart of a betrayer and give us a heart, a heart of love, a heart of friendship. We all understand betrayal. We understand the impact that it has upon us, the bitterness that it sows, the resentment that it grooms within us. It may happen in our relationships, that with a friend, a family member, a spouse. It may happen in our life circumstances. The social currents may be going in a way that are not pleasant for you, that you don't You don't embrace. You may feel like they're betraying who you are. They may be betraying the morals that you hold dear, the values that are precious to you. You may feel like the circumstances of this world betray you through the economics that are happening. Or civic leadership. Or things that are going on in the marketplace. Whether it be your employer, your boss, or someone you work with. Betrayal can happen in our spiritual lives. We can find ourselves lured into following false philosophies and belief systems. Believing that prosperity is the answer for everything. Or believing that if we just serve, that that's the answer to all of our problems. That we can practice asceticism. That we can just live 
minimally and give, be philanthropists, benefit others, that these things will make everything right in life. But this is betrayal. We can work out a bargaining relationship with God. You know, God, I follow you. Therefore, I expect you to do for me, to do what's good for me. But we can find ourselves feeling as though God has abandoned us. I've been living for God. I've been serving God. I've been good for God. And yet, these bad things keep happening. And you can find yourself blaming God. How do we cast our burden? He says, cast your burden on the Lord. Cast this heaviness, this onerous burden onto the Lord. Cast means to fling, to toss it, to place it there. How do you do that? It sounds good, but how do you practice this? Practically speaking, how do we do it? 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says something very similar. It gives us a great start. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, the first step's very clear, isn't it? We have to humble ourselves. Think less of ourselves. Or as I heard said in the discipleship class this morning, think less often about yourself. That's kind of hard to do, isn't it? There are two practical ways I think we can lean into humbling ourselves. One is to think that it's not abnormal. It's not abnormal for you, for me, to experience burdens. It's not abnormal for you to feel the burden, the pressure from the enemy, from this broken world, whatever it may be. We almost are led to think that it is abnormal, isn't it? And so when something comes our way that doesn't feel good, we chafe under it. We, we push back against it. This shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this. So we take on kind of an entitled position. But there's nothing in Scripture that suggests that's true. It's not abnormal for us to experience burdens. You're not entitled to a burden-free existence. In fact, God's instruction tells us that He fulfills His purposes in us and for His kingdom even through these burdens in our lives. Secondly, we can acknowledge that you're not capable of doing it alone. It's not abnormal for me to face burdens, to encounter burdens, to feel the pressure of a broken world. And it's not my ability, my strength to navigate this on my own. I don't have the strength to do it. All of us are weak, broken creatures without the needed strength. All of us need help from one who is stronger. So we humble ourselves. We also believe God's word. What does his word say? That he cares for you. That he cares for you. 
It doesn't matter how you feel at this moment, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are in your life at this time. The evidence in God's Word affirms His deep love, His care for each of you. The evidence is that He has been long-suffering with our flaws, right? Sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, I don't know how God can continue to love me. I know too much. And he's demonstrated this love through Jesus' condescension and crucifixion. But God has demonstrated, Romans 5, 8 says, his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Also, he tells us here that we acknowledge that we may have to continue to carry the burden. Just because God sustains you doesn't mean that he takes the burden away. Sustaining means that even as we bear the burden, he goes with us. He enables us. He makes us capable with his strength working through us to bear up under the burden. The answer that we all want, I want, is I want him to remove it, take it away. When I'm praying for God's help in the midst of trouble, I'm praying for him to take the trouble away, aren't you? And if you said no, you're lying, right? You're lying to yourself. He doesn't always take the trouble away. He didn't relieve Job of his pressure, problem, brokenness that he was encountering in the moment, Job didn't even ask him to take it away. Job trusted God to provide for him as he bore it, and God brought him through it. He helped him to navigate it, to sustain him as he worked through the issue. So acknowledge that you may have to continue to carry the burden, but he will sustain you. He will enable you to bear it as long as he sees fit for you to bear it. And he will use it to accomplish his purpose, his shaping of you. First Peter also tells us, practically speaking, that we know that he will exalt us at a future time. This is not our destination. This is not the end of the story. This is not our future. These are momentary light afflictions, Paul writes in Romans 8 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Momentary light afflictions that we are encountering. There is coming a new day, a new creation, a fullness of joy, a release of all burdens for those who are in Christ the cross is guaranteed. Jesus took the complete burden of all brokenness and sin upon himself. And for those who put their trust in him, there is awaiting a new day when that becomes a reality. And we live in the fullness of his righteousness, his holiness. And we're set free from all burdens 
and hurts and pains. And then he tells us, David writes here in this 55th Psalm, the righteous will never be forsaken. They'll never be shaken. They'll never be moved. You know, this is the same word that he used earlier. The same word that he used earlier when he was talking about slipping. For they drop trouble upon me. For they drop trouble upon me. They cause me to lose my way. The ground shakes or the circumstances shake and I find myself trembling and faltering and losing my way. This is the exact same word that he uses here. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, shaken, falter. He will not permit this to occur. Not you or I, he will not. Christ redeems us, adopts us by substitutionary death. He assures us of a future resurrection, a life beyond the grave. He has sent his spirit to indwell us. Now we will never be orphans. He said, I will never leave you as orphans. When you're adopted into God's family, there's no going back. There's no going back to that hopeless position. He will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His spirit will illumine us along this journey and show us the way. This is the way he sustains us. He equips us. He enables us. His empowerment, his strength enables us to endure. And he sustains us all the way home. All the way home. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? As you look around in a world that is so filled with trouble, so full of despair, and the temptation for you and for me is to fall in and take our cue from the world and to be filled with despair and hopelessness and to be anxious and to feel betrayed. God, have you betrayed us? I mean, we're living here in a land where we, you know, have been founded upon Christian principles and, you know, the conversation, the narrative. Why? Why so much pain and suffering? Why so much mass violence? Why such a lack of respect for life? Why such a Lack of joy. Have you just given up on us? Have you turned us over to our own devices? Maybe. Maybe he has for creation. Maybe he has for this world. Maybe he has for this nation. Maybe he has for this world as it currently exists. But not his people. Not his people. Not those who have put their trust in him. Not those who are adopted into the family. He will sustain you. He will sustain you. He doesn't say or promise that he's going to remove the burden. In fact, he may use the burden's presence in our lives in order to advance the gospel for others to see. 
He may use the burden in our lives to communicate to the rest of the world his value, his glory, his honor. In fact, that's exactly what his scripture says he will do. And we rest in that. We embrace that. We relish that. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Even in the darkest of times, in the most painful circumstances, even when betrayal is at its worst in our lives, when hurt when the burden feels like we can't take another step, Lord, enable me to embrace it and to rejoice in it because it is for your glory, for your honor, and for your kingdom purposes. All the way home. All the way home. And Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are. We thank you for this opportunity today to gather around your word, to be encouraged, Lord, by a servant who went through such a difficult, debilitating experience and how you use that, Lord, to focus the attention upon your faithfulness, your steadfastness. Lord, enable us today through the power and the work of your spirit to have this truth take the grip in our heart, our soul, and to strengthen us and sustain us even in a world that seems to be shaking at its very foundation. Enable us, Lord, to be pleasing and honorable to you. I pray for the one that's here today who is overcome by the state of this world, who doesn't know you as Savior, that today your spirit might move and work in their heart, that you might regenerate that heart and bring about the fruit of faith and repentance in their lives and draw them to yourself. Release them from the burden of sin and hopelessness. And Lord, we'll thank you and bless you for all that you do, for you're worthy of our praise. Worthy are you. And we offer this prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.